morning. Oh, good morning. Is there anything I can help you with today? Well, yes, I see that you've got large amounts of things and small amounts of things. I'm wondering if I could get a pinch of something. Well, I guess that depends about what it might be. Well, I'd like to purchase $3 worth of God, please. Excuse me? $3 worth of God, please. Are you sure all you want is $3? $3, exactly. No more, no less. I just want enough for it to be convenient. I certainly don't want to have too much of God that it becomes overwhelming, or I don't have to make giant changes in my life. Um, no, $3 is, is enough. So I can say I've got God, but not enough that God becomes a problem for me. A problem for you? Yeah, well, okay, I want God to feel like I'm reassured that in case of an emergency, I've got him, like, in my back pocket, you know? Um, so that God is there for the important events like weddings and funerals and baptisms, but not so that he's a part of, like, everything in my life. I mean, I want God to be with, there for me like an insurance policy. You know, like um, comforting like a warm blanket or a hot cup of cocoa. But if emergency strikes, I have just enough there. Have you ever considered to buy a larger dose of God? Uh, no. Do you have any idea how cumbersome that would be to have more than $3 worth of God in my life? I mean, I don't want to have enough of him that I have to love people who make me angry or they hurt me, you know, like a... <laughs> I don't want to have to, like, love the immigrants um, or the homeless. I certainly don't want to have to make, make me think about all those depressing things like global warming and human trafficking and children that don't have food or a place to live. No, that would mean that I'd have to, like, step out of myself. That would mean that I'd have to get involved. No, that would mean that I couldn't buy and do what I wanted to do, you know? Like, I couldn't go on vacations because I'd have to, like... Give money to the guy that's standing at the end of the exit aisle, um, asking for money. I don't know. Let's just say $3 is not for me. Oops, $3. $3 worth of God? I do not want transformation. I just want ecstasy. I don't want to have to love a black man. I don't want to have to go on a, on a mission trip and pick fruit with immigrants. Uh, I don't want to have, I want safety, I want security, and I'm fine just the way I am. I don't want to have to struggle, and I just don't want to have to sacrifice, okay? I just want $3 worth of God. Very well, miss, but I can guarantee that there will be no change from your purchase. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Judges uh, chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Um, I love that Josh, uh, or Jacob started out with uh, a, a verse from uh, 1 John that said, My children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, because that's what I'd like to talk to you about tonight, what happens when we don't keep ourselves from idols. And so he had no way of knowing that. Um, he didn't know what I was going to speak on tonight, but very applicable to what I'm, what I'm going to talk about tonight. So Judges chapter uh, 6. It's the story of Gideon, a story that many of you are familiar with, uh, uh, but I hope that you can glean something from it tonight that you haven't seen before. W would you just open with me in prayer? 
So, Father, I, I thank you. I thank you for power and authority. I, I thank you that no weapon that's been formed against me can prosper, that that's my inheritance in you. And so, Lord, I call an end to any weapon uh, that has been uh, forged in this place tonight. Satan, I speak to you in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. You're going to have no power here. You're going to have no authority here. I bind you. I cast you out to the dry places. You have to go where Jesus tells you to go, but it can't be here. And I pray, Father God, that you would come and saturate this atmosphere with your presence. I come against any hindrance, any obstacle to your word going forth. I declare and decree that it will go forth and prosper. And, and it will uh, do the very thing that you sent it to do in people's lives. And we just thank you for that, Lord. Now fill my mouth with your words. I pray that I would say only what you tell me to say. Lord, I have many notes on this paper. I pray that you would help my eye to just fall on what I need to say, that you would download anything that I, I don't have in my notes that I need to say, and that you would be exalted and magnified in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges uh, chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to do something I don't often do. Normally I would read through the passage, but I'm going to try tonight just to go verse by verse and explain them uh, as we go through the verses, uh, just because it's a long passage and I, I wanna, I'd like to get to, to most of it. Uh, the, 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 the verse in the end of chapter 5, the very last verse in verse 31, it, it ends by saying, so the land had rest for 40 years. Now, you need to know at the end of chapter 5, uh, we, we're reading that Israel had experienced rest under the judge Deborah. Uh, the leadership of Deborah was instrumental, and as a result, the land had rest for 30 years. So when the, when the story of Gideon picks up, uh, it begins as Israel is coming off a time of relative ease. Uh, because of the comfort that, that, that they were experiencing, they had placed God on the back burner of their lives. They had forgotten about him. They had become self-sufficient, and they, they didn't think they needed God anymore. They, they just wanted $3 worth of God, if you will. And so the Lord will get their attention in this passage by showing them how much they really did need him. And so they'd had this wonderful time of deliverance for 40 years. And, and now they're going to begin a cycle that is repeated throughout the book of Judges. We see it repeated over and over and over again. Many of you are familiar with that cycle. The cycle starts with life being good. And when life is good, it's easy to forget God. It's easy to put him on that back burner. And because they, they put God on the back burner of their lives, they begin to sin and forsake God. They don't feel the need to obey him anymore. And so God wants them back. And so he'll do whatever he needs to do. And he makes their life a little bit uncomfortable. And, and, and as a result, they, they, their enemies come and oppress them and overwhelm them. And when life gets hard, when they get miserable enough, they cry out to God and they repent. 
and God hears their prayers and, and he brings relief and then God, then their life gets good for a little while again and the whole cycle starts over. Life is good, they forget God, put them on the back burner of their life, begin to disobey him, allow sin to come into their life, they experience the consequences of their sin, God turns them over to the enemy, the enemy comes and ravishes their land, they're oppressed and hurting, they cry out to God, God hears, he sends a deliverer, he gives them relief, life gets good, the cycle starts all over again. Are you following me? Hasn't changed a whole lot, has it? Our life can be the exact same way, and, and we're going to see that throughout this, this book, uh, this chapter in, in Judges. And so, uh, the, the, so that is where the story of Gideon picks up. The land had been in rest for 40 years, and immediately in verse 1 of chapter 6, we read, then... The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. That word evil means that which is displeasing to Jehovah. We see at the, the beginning of chapter 6, that cycle is now beginning. The land was at rest, life was good, everything was going well, and then they forgot about God. They did evil in his sight. These are God's people that are doing that. But you would never know it by the way they were living. They looked like the unbeliever down the street. They were covenant people uh, of God. They were in covenant with him, but they were living like people who were not under a covenant relationship with God. They were being unfaithful to the Lord. And then in verse 1b we read, So then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, so God delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. They did evil on the side of the Lord. They forgot about him. And now God wants them back. And so he's going to get their attention. And he delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. You know that the, the, the number seven in the Bible is really an important number. It's the number of perfection, the number of completion. God delivered them into the hand of their enemy just the right amount of time to get their attention. And verse 2 says, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Remember, the children of Israel were God's chosen people. They were in covenant with him. And, and when they did evil in his sight, he, he took it for a while, but then eventually he turned them over to the enemy. I want you to realize that by this time, Israel had already repeated the cycle many times and they had experienced 43 years of suffering under the hands of enemy nations because they had disobeyed God, because they had turned to worshiping idols. And what's shocking to me is that they didn't ever seem to learn the lesson. They didn't start connecting the dots uh, that, that when they walked in fellowship and obedience with God, life was good, not without pain, but good. And when they forgot God and they put him on the back burner of their lives and turned to idols, life got hard. And that's shocking to me that they repeat that pattern over and over and over in their lives and they never seem to connect the dots. But here's the thing. I repeat that same pattern over and over and over in my life and I never seem to connect the dots either. Because here's what I know about God, and you hear me preach this all the time. One of my favorite verses is, God's pleasant path leads to pleasant places. The Bible says, let the older women teach the younger. Younger women, those of you that are here, and younger men, just listen in. But I'm here to tell you, learn something from me. The older I get, the more I want to scream this from the rooftops. That God's pleasant path 
really does lead to pleasant places. That obedience really does bring life. That God's ways really are right. And that when I do it my way, I mess everything up. And that if I could just obey God, if I could just listen to him and do things his way, if I really understood that his word is there to spare me pain. But I can't connect those dots and neither could Israel. And so God gave them over, scripture says, look at that, to the hand of Midian for several, several, seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against them. And that word gave them over. One commentator says the message is that if we play with sin, God may eventually give us over completely to the power or authority of that sin. It's a frightening thought. Jehovah repeatedly gave Israel into the hands of their enemies. And 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that these things happened. Can I tell you? These things in the Old Testament happen as examples to us so that we can learn from them. So when we teach the story on Gideon, the Bible has left that story there for us to learn from it, for it to, for it to be an example to us. So that when we read that Israel... When life was peachy keen, honky-dory, they forgot God and put him on the back burner of their lives. And before they knew it, the enemy was attacking them and prevailing against them. And that they got miserable, that they got plundered. And in that moment, cried out to God and God heard from heaven and come rescue them. And then they repeated that same pattern. We are supposed to learn from this. We're supposed to look at that and let it be an example of what not to do in our life, but I'm afraid we repeat that same pattern. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. As a result, the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for several years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against them. And then it goes on to say, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves dens, the caves and the strongholds which are in the mountains. And uh, this is fascinating to me, that, that because that the Midian, their enemy, was prevailing against them, they fled to caves, to refuges, to, to a place of refuge, to a place of hiding, to dens. And, and they, they went to the stronghold. Oh, I could park here and preach this all night. It's not my message, I, so I'll have to preach it another time. But let me just... Let me just briefly pause here and tell you what I saw in that this week as I studied. You've heard me preach a million times on the scripture that says, don't give place to the devil. That word place is topos. It's, it's where we get our word topography. It means a geographical location. Don't give place. Don't give a geographical location in your life for the enemy to work. Don't give him an occasion to act in your life. Can I tell you how many of our thoughts give place to the devil? How many of the things that we meditate on and think on give place to the devil to occupy and to find a place to act from in our life? And we see it in this story that Israel, because they did not obey God, they gave place to the devil. You and I give place to the devil when we do not obey God. Do you see that? And because Israel did not obey God, they gave place to their enemy, the Midianites, to come in and occupy, if you will. 
And instead of repenting and turning back to God to come rescue them, they flee. And they go to, to a refuge of their own making. They go to a cave. They go to a den, a place of hiding. They go to the stronghold. And I'm telling you, I see it over and over in people's lives. And Lord, help me to teach this. But, but I see that when we give place to our enemy... When we disobey God and we open up a place for the enemy to occupy in our life, a place for him to act from in our life, what we do is instead of taking that place back with the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I gave place to him. I, I disobeyed you and I opened myself up to, to a place where the enemy could act from. Instead of doing that, we flee. We start running from the enemy and his tactics. I don't want depression, but I don't know how to get free from it. I don't want to be angry and unforgiving, but I don't know how to get free from it. And so we just run. And we try to flee from the enemy. And then sometimes we go to the stronghold. How many of you know people that have given a place for the enemy to act in their life? They haven't obeyed God. They haven't walked with God and done things God's way. And then they turn to drugs and alcohol and gambling and addiction. The stronghold, a stronghold is anything that has a stronghold on you. It's when we give place to the devil and, and we open up an opportunity for him to get a stronghold in our life. When all the while, God is just waiting for that cycle to stop and for us to say, I am not going to continue to put you on a back burner. I am going to give you lordship in my life. I'm going to say yes to what you want me to say yes to and no to what you don't want me to say no to. What you don't want me to say yes to. Because I am not going to allow this thing to get a stronghold in my life. So it was whenever, so then it was whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming as numerous as locusts, both they, they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Look at that. So what, what the Word of God says is that Israel, uh, their enemy now, would come into their land, <laughs> and that for seven years their enemy impoverished them. That word impoverished means to make small, to, to diminish. And can I just tell you that your enemy, the one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, that is his goal in your life to make you small, to make you lose your voice, to make you lose your courage, to make you lose your strength in the Lord, to make you lose your joy. He comes to strip you of everything in your life. He wants to make you small. He wants to impoverish you, to oppress you. That is his goal. And it happens when we begin to forget the Lord in our life and put him on the back burner of our life. When we nod to him and we bow down to the gods of this world. You see, that's what Israel was doing. Israel, uh, even though they were God's chosen people, they were God's covenant people, even though God had said to them, this is the way to life. Obey me. <laughs> Occupy the land. Don't let the enemy move in. And follow my ways. And then you'll be blessed in all you do. 
God had told them that a million times. If you read through the Old Testament, you will see that repeated over and over and over. This is the way you get blessed. You do what I tell you to do. You follow my ways. And you will be blessed. And Israel knew that. They knew that's what God wanted from them. But you see, when life got good, they forgot that. And then they were in this land with all of these foreign gods, with Baal, with Asherah. They, they were in with all of these other gods that looked really good. And they're seeing all their friends, all the people around them worshiping these gods. And so you know what? <laughs> you know, God understands that our life is good and we just want to have fun. And so let's bow down to those gods. Let's just include them. Now, we don't want to exclude the big G God, but let's have some fun with this little G gods because they're fun. And everybody else is doing it. And so let's take our big G God and put him a lot. $3 worth of God, please. Don't ask me to have any more than that because I just don't want to have fun with those little G gods. And they began to bow down to those other gods. Now they didn't push big G God away, they just kind of put him on the back burner. Nod to God every once in a while, but let's do Asherah, let's do Baal. The word Baal means master. So the Baals in our life are anything that master us besides God, anything that has the final say in our life beside God, anything we bow down to, little G God other than him. He says, I will have no other gods before me. I want your worship. I want your undivided heart. I don't want you putting God side by side and worshiping all of us. I am the one and true, the only living God. But you see, we do what the Israelites do. They, 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 wanted to, they started to worship all these other gods. And so God turned them over to their enemy. And what happened was the enemy came and he impoverished them. They stripped their land. So here's what would happen. I love this. The enemy didn't just move in and take everything. Because your enemy is calculated. He's not in a big hurry. He waits until just the opportune time. You remember the story about Jesus when he was being tempted in the wilderness. What, what does the Bible say? He tempted Jesus once, twice, three times, and then he left until what? A more opportune time. He's calculated. He knows exactly what it's going to take to bring you down. And he has all the time in the world to wait. And he has studied you. He has, he's kept his eye on you. I, in, in the book of Job, uh, it's in the, the, um, the throne room. And, and Satan's there, which just is uh, it's a preach all on its own. But, but he's in the throne room. And God says, Satan, where have you been? And here's Rhea's rendition. I, I've been, been going through the world looking for vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Can I tell you, he has studied your life. And he knows your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. And he wants to, to decimate your life. I promise you that is his goal. And, and Israel's enemy, the Midianites, Knew, they, they, they stripped them of everything, but they waited until the opportune time. And the opportune time for the Midianites was they would let Israel plant and plow and water and tend. And just right before the harvest came, the Bible says they would, swerp, they would swoop in like locusts. 
and they would devour the harvest. Oh, can I tell you, you have an enemy who wants to swoop in and devour your harvest. He's after your family. He's after your marriage. He's after your finances. He's after your relationship with Christ, and he is calculated, and at just the right time, when you are unaware, and you've put God on the back burner of your life, and you've stopped caring about the things that God cares about, he will swoop in and take and plunder your whole life. We cannot be unaware. We cannot be unaware. Quite frankly, mm, Lord, I asked the Lord to just keep my mouth shut about this all week. I've been praying about it because I, I'm studying this passage and all I can see is the United States of America. All I can see is a nation that was once one nation under God saying yes to what God says no to, compromising and bowing down to the things that this world says is okay and the things that God says is not okay doesn't even matter anymore. And how dare you say that isn't right? You're intolerant. And church, I'm just going to tell you, we cannot continue on this path because we have a God who cares. And he is a jealous God and he wants his people back. And the voices that are preaching this are being silenced and my voice will not be silenced. My voice will not be silenced because I am telling you that the day is coming when we will stand before God and we will have to give an account for everything that we've done in the flesh. And unless the church begins to rise up and say yes to what God says yes to and no to what God says no to, this world, this nation, I'm telling you where it's headed. Mark my words, write it down. Quote me if you will. I don't even care anymore. Because here's what I know, that God will not sit back and do nothing. He will not. He wants his people back and he wants his church his glorious bride without spot without wrinkle without blemish rising up rising up against this not conforming to it not bowing down to the same altars that the world is bowing down to we've got to draw the line church because here's what happens the enemy swoops in and devours the land and leaves it impoverished, decimated, and they're all standing there saying, what should we do? Run to the caves, run to the strongholds, flee, hide. I believe there's a persecution coming, I'm just going to tell you. I believe with all of my heart that there is a time of persecution coming for the church. I do. Call me crazy, call me whatever you want, but I know what the Lord speaks to me in my quiet time. And I'm telling you that if we do not gear up for this, if you're fleeing from COVID, what are you going to do when persecution comes? What are you going to do when somebody shows up at your door wanting your Bible? What are you going to do when you get thrown into jail for standing in the pulpit preaching? What then, church, if we can't stand up now, if we can't stand up to somebody who doesn't hold the same belief that we have, what are we going to do? If we bow down to that, how in the world are we ever going to survive when persecution comes? Church, seven years. 
they got plundered. Every time they had a harvest, the enemy would sweep in and steal from them, would, would, would completely wipe them out. And so we see Gideon now, when the story picks up, Gideon is in a wine press. You do not, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. You do not thresh wheat in a wine press. You thresh wheat out in the open and you throw the wheat up and the shaft gets blown away by the wind. A wine press is not the place you want to do that. But here's what I believe has happened. I believe that Gideon got a hold of enough harvest and he knew that the pattern of the enemy was to wipe that out and that the enemy was coming to steal that little bit of harvest away and he was going to keep it and he had, he had taken it and he took it into the, the wine press where he could salvage that little bit of harvest. <laughs> And he was sitting there threshing it. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord comes to him. And it picks up. Let's see. So I want you to see verse 7 first. It says, And it came to pass that when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. I want you to see that, that they cried out to the Lord because of what? The Midianites. <laughs> Uh, they didn't cry out to the Lord on account of their sin. They're crying out to the Lord because their life is hard. That word cry, commentators say, it means uh, it does not seem to have an indication of repentance with it, but rather remorse. Their cry lacked repentance. They wanted relief, but they were not willing to repent. And, and that's fascinating to me because I think so often that's what happens is God, God, God wants our cry to be one of repentance. He wanted the Israelites to understand that the Midianites were not the cause of their trouble that they were the cause of their trouble, that they had put God on the back burner, that they had chosen to bow down to the gods of this world, that they, had, they, had, they, had, they, were, uh, they were worshiping idols, other gods before him. They had forgotten about their God, and that's why they were impoverished. That's why they were in the condition they were in, and God wanted them back, and he wanted them to come back to him. But they came back just wanting relief. And what's fascinating to me, they sat in that place of impoverishment for seven years before they cried out to the Lord. Seven years. They tried to fix it themselves. Seven years they refused to see the reason their life was in the condition it was in. They wanted relief, but they weren't willing to repent. And so it's so interesting to me. It's the first time in the book of Judges that God interrupts that cycle. Every time he would send a judge, a deliverer, when they cried out to him. This time, God sends a what? A prophet. Before he sends a judge, he sends a prophet. That, that's important. Don't miss that. Because up until this time, he had sent a judge. And, and this time, he sends a prophet of God. Someone with the very word of God. And here's what the prophet says. Because, see, God knew they needed repentance more than they needed relief. And, and, and I believe there's a time coming that a spirit of repentance will sweep this nation. I believe people think they need relief right now and they're crying out for it, but he knows uh, that, that a nation that's unwilling to repent of its idolatry, that, that's what's gotten us in the condition we're in. And so 
the, the prophet comes in and, and he, in verse 7 you can read, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent a prophet who said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The New King James Version says, but you have not obeyed my voice. So there's the cause. You have not obeyed my voice, and you're worshiping other gods. And so God is ever so gently through the voice of a prophet reminding the Israelites that this wasn't about the Midianites. This was about them. And they got into this situation because they had turned away from a living God. And more than Israel needed relief, they needed to understand why they got into that situation. Same is true for us so often. We want relief, but God wants us to look at the why that got us into that situation. He wants to change his people. So often we do what the Israelites did. We cry out to God for relief and we blame him or the enemy for the things that are quite simply the consequence of our own sin. Things that are the result of us taking our eyes off of him and not obeying his word. So the prophet came and reminded them of God's faithfulness. He, he reminded them how God had delivered them and set them free. He's reminding them of what God did before and, and how he was able to deliver, how he was able to do the impossible. What he was saying is the Midianites are a piece of cake for God. They're a piece of cake for God. God can take care of them, but God wants you back. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32, 18. I, I want to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. It says, you neglected the rock that had who had fathered you. You forgot the God who had given you birth. You neglected the rock who had followed you and forgot the God who had given you birth. Don't miss that. Neglecting the rock will result in forgetting the rock. So much of what got Israel in trouble was neglecting God. And when they neglected him long enough, they forgot him. And that's what got them in trouble. Verse 11, now the angel of the Lord came and said unto the tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. So this is where we talked about how uh, the angel of the Lord, which is uh, Theophily, it's God uh, coming, it's a pre-incarnate Christ is what I believe it is, and, and, and it's him coming to Gideon in the wine press, and, and he appears to Gideon, and, and, and let's just look at that story. The first thing he says in verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. You need to know that more space is devoted to Gideon than any of the other judges. I think Samson comes in second, but Gideon has the most verses dedicated to him in the book of Judges. And I want you to see the first thing that the angel of the Lord does when he appears to Gideon. He, he says, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you. The first thing he does is assure Gideon 
of the promise of the Lord's presence with him. He says, the Lord is with you. Can I just tell you that whatever the Lord has called you to do for him, whatever the Lord has asked of you, you can stand on the promise of of his presence with you. Notice in verse 15 when Gideon highlights all the reasons that he can't be used by God. He says, oh Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh and I am the least in my father's house. God's reply is, surely I will be with you. And we will defeat Midian as one man. You see, God understands the power of his presence in our life. At at another point, he says to Gideon, uh, you know, you need to understand I'm going to take your army down to nothing because I don't want them to think that by their own strength they did this. And what he's saying to Gideon is, you don't have the power to do this in your own, but, but I will be with you. And it reminds me so much of Matthew chapter 28, where the great commission is given to us. And he says, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything. Did you get that? Teaching them to obey everything I have said to you. We, we've stopped teaching that. We've stopped teaching people to obey. But that's the the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey the things that I have taught you. And then he says, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. So he's again assuring us of his presence. And you see, that's what he's saying to Gideon. Here is a man hiding in in a wine press. and, And you want to say, Lord, you're asking him to go deliver your people? Really, Lord? And you're calling him a man of valor and he's hiding in a wine press? But here's what God knows. He knows that whatever he's calling him to do, God is with him like a mighty warrior. And there are some of you sitting here tonight and God has asked you to do something difficult. He's given you an assignment that you think is too big for you, but can I assure you of his presence with you? And God plus you is a majority, not a minority. You're able because of his presence with you. Gideon said to the angel of the Lord, now remember, this angel of the Lord has appeared to him, and and Gideon says to him, Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us, and where are all his miracles which our father told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us, and he's delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Well, isn't that, doesn't that sound familiar? Here Gideon is, and the angel of the Lord, God incarnate, is in front of him. And, and he says, you know, the Lord is with you, Gideon. And Gideon says, well, if the Lord is with me, <laughs> then why am I not seeing his miracles? And, and where is he at in all of this? And isn't that what we do when life is hard? When things are not going well for us, isn't the first thing we do is question whether or not God is faithful, whether he is with us, whether he even is real, if he's powerful. If you're with me, Lord, why am I not seeing you do the miraculous in my life? Which is just so funny to me because why are the Israelites in this condition? Because they've forsaken God, they've forgotten about God, and now they want to blame God for what he's not doing in their life. I saw myself in so many places in this story this week because I I think when life gets hard, we do the same thing. We question God's faithfulness and his love for us and even his existence sometimes. Verse 14 says, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand 
of the Midianites, have I not sent you? Go in this might of yours. So I, I love that. And commentators I read says that, um, that they all agree that Midian was a, or Gideon was a coward and that's why he was hiding in the wine press. As I studied this, I'm not so sure about that. I think that Gideon actually is a hero. He came up with a way to steal back from the enemy, to keep the enemy from stealing from him. Are you with me? I actually think he should be commended for that, and yet every commentator I read said he was a coward, and that's why he was hiding in the wine press. And I'm thinking the enemy's going to swoop in and steal, and he knows it, and he's found a way to keep the enemy from plundering him. Well, church, can I just tell you, there is a way to keep the enemy from plundering. We don't have to let him steal from us. So the angel of the Lord says, go in this might of yours, Gideon, and the might is the promise of God to be with him. And, and God plus Gideon is powerful and mighty. Missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, once said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. How could we change a world for him if we really realized that God was with us like a mighty warrior? That every conversation we have, I'm mindful. I, I, love, I love to go out to eat, and, and so I, I, I am mindful when, when I have a waitress in front of me that she has been put there or he has been put there by God, that I'm in that place for a moment, for, for a reason. And, and I'm mindful of the presence of God in me when, I, when I'm sitting at the table and I'm interacting with them. Every conversation I have with anybody, I'm mindful that the presence of God is in me and that, that, that there's something that he wants to deposit in that person. What would happen if we really lived that way? That in every interaction we had with somebody, we, we went in the might that was ours, with God with us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in this world. What would happen? Could we really change a world for him if we really grabbed a hold of that? All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. So Gideon says in verse 17, If I have found favor in your sight, let, show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Gideon wants a sign. He said, Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he says, I will wait till you come back. And so Gideon went and he prepared. If you look at verse 19, you can see that Gideon left and, and he prepares, the word says, a young goat and unleavened bread and, and from an ephah flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them to him. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour, it out, pour out the broth. And so he did. The angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. I want you to keep in mind that the enemy had been plundering the land. And Gideon took a whole goat and a whole bunch of flour, prepared unleavened bread that really the people probably could have eaten, and, and he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. God doesn't want an offering that doesn't cost us anything. And, and so then look what happened. 
But verse 22, now Gideon perceived that it was the angel of the Lord. I just bet he did. And so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And so Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. So that word peace there is interesting. It means much more than the cessation of hostilities. It carries the idea of well-being and health and prosperity. And, and so in verse 23, the Lord says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. You won't, you won't die. <laughs> and, and, and so Gideon does what should have been done a long time ago. He built an altar for the Lord, and he called it the Lord is peace. Now, I want you to just picture the Lord has told Gideon, you are going to go out and deliver Israel against this incredible enemy. Now, you need to know that the Midianites were powerful, and they had camels, and they were like big-time weapons during that time, and, and the Israelites didn't have any of that. And can you imagine Gideon thinking, do you, really? How am I going to do that? I'm going to be with you. And then he says, peace be yours. <laughs> and, and Gideon builds this altar to the Lord, and he calls it the Lord is peace. And yet, he's going to war. And the first thing he does is build an altar to the Lord and says, you're the Lord of peace. I think we have a messed up idea of what peace really is. When we think of peace, we usually think it's the cessation of hostilities or the eradication of stress. We long for peace, and so we're trying to find ways to stop the hostility and get rid of the stress. But the Hebrew understanding of peace had nothing to do with the absence of hostility or the absence of stress. The idea of peace was that things are in order. And so what Gideon was saying is, I'm about to find myself in the middle of a battle, in the middle of a war, in the middle of an extremely hostile situation. Life is about to get stressful, but one thing I know now is that God is with me, and God has promised me that he'll be with me. And so in all my weaknesses, I will abandon myself to the Lord and to his will. And he will be with me. And my life will be in order. Because he is with me. There's so much I want to tell you about this story. But we're, we're short on time. And so I want to end. I will, I'll end here and just quickly tell you the rest of it. But I, I don't want you to miss this part. Peace means that things are in order in my life. Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And then he goes on to say, in this world you will have trouble. Wait a second, Jesus. You just said that in you I will have peace. And then the next breath you say, in this world you will have trouble. What, what is up with that? Isn't peace lack of trouble? No, what Jesus is saying is, I've ordered your life that everything that's happening to you, everything that you're going through, I have you, I'm with you, that, that nothing is happening to you outside of my perfect will for your life, and that you and me are the majority, and that nothing is impossible for, for me, and that if I'm with you, this is nothing. This is a piece of cake for me, and so you can have peace in whatever you're facing knowing I am with you. I'm with you, and you will have trouble in this world. But in me, you can have peace. You can have peace. And so very quickly, uh, that same night, verse 25 says that the Lord says to him, take your father's young bull, 
second bull of seven years. I want you to tear, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has erected in your backyard. And I want you to tear down the wooden Asherah pole. And I want you to use that wood to build, an, uh, to, to build a fire on an altar. And I want you to take that altar of Baal and make it an altar to me. And, and I want you to sacrifice your father's bull. Now remember, commentators say that that bull, remember, the enemy had plundered everything. And so if there was a bull remaining, it was prime. Because it would have been the thing that impregnated all the other cows. Are you with me? And so to kill that bull was going to be a big thing. And so God is saying, "You, well, I want you to kill your father's bull. And tear down the Asherah pole and the Baal uh, altar in your father's backyard. Because you see, what, what, what God knew is that Gideon had to win some private battles before he could win some public battles. Gideon had to do some business in his own backyard before he could do some business for God out in public. And I'm telling you, that's what we want to avoid. Everybody wants a, wants a platform. Everybody wants to, to be up front. Everybody wants a big ministry. But nobody's willing to do the work behind the scenes that it takes. Nobody's willing to die. Nobody's willing to count the cost. Nobody's willing to do some private work that nobody sees so that God can use them publicly. And I'm telling you, if you want to do great things for God, we've got to start tearing down some altars in our own life. We've got to start looking at the things that we think nobody else knows about, that it's only you and God that know about, and you know what God understands. If you want to do something powerful for God, I'm telling you, you've got to do what he made Gideon to do. You've got to tear down some altars, some places that, that you have worshipped the gods of this world. You've got to begin to build a new altar for the Lord. And to sacrifice on that. Offer a sacrifice to him on it. Before God could use Gideon publicly, he had to clean up his private life. And, and so that's what he did. And the Bible says that he went out by night. He didn't want to face his father. And, and he gets a lot of flack for that as well. But, but he tears down. He does what God told him to do. And he tears it down. And the next morning, verse 29 says, very early in the morning, the men of the city went out to Baal, which was just shameful because I look at that and I say, they were so deep in their idol worship. That they're getting up early in the morning to do it. <laughs> One Scottish preacher said the worshipers of Baal never neglected their morning devotions. That should put us to shame. They went out to that altar. They found it tore down. And they, they, were, and they were angry. And they said, who did this? And probably one of the ten men that went out to Gideon, word got back from one of them that it was Gideon, and they wanted to kill him, and they went to his father, and, and they said, you know, he tore down your, your, your altar. And what was interesting to me is they were so deep in their idol worship that they were willing to kill the one, persecute the one who was standing up for the one true living God. And I see that today. I see that, that people uh, are, uh, they, very few people will stand up for the truth and defend the word of God. And if they do, they're the enemy. They're the ones that are being labeled intolerant. And it's because we want $3 worth of God. We want to worship God, but we want to be able to include our false gods as well. 
We don't want it to cost us anything. We want to be able to worship at the altars of this world and indulge in the sins of our flesh and just nod to God. But God wants an undivided heart. He wants an undivided heart. It's interesting. The rest of the story is just fascinating. I, I wish I could... I wish I could go into it with you, but, but go home and read it. Gideon asked for two more signs. God gives him both of those signs, and that's when he said, I'd like a sign for you from you, Gideon. I'd like you to tear down those, uh, those uh, altars of your fathers and prove to me you're devoted to me. And, and then Gideon comes back to him again, and next thing you know, Gideon is rallying up all these people to come and battle with him, and you know the story. Gideon has, oh, something like 33,000 men, and, and they're all following him, and it looks like he has a pretty good-sized army, and God says, no, you have too many people because I want to get the credit. When you, when you get this victory, I want the credit for it. I don't want you thinking it came by your hand, and so I want you to send the people home who are frightened, and so make an announcement. If anybody's frightened, they can go home, and 23,000 people left, which is interesting to me because... I'm telling you, I used to think numbers were everything. I used to look at Monday night and say, why isn't it growing? And Lord, why aren't you, you know, why haven't you made this a megachurch? I'm preaching your word. It should work. But I'm realizing numbers are not everything. You can have a massive megachurch and not have devoted followers, not be preaching the gospel. And, and so I, I, I just want to tell you, if somebody can leave you, you need to get the gift of goodbye and let them leave because if, if they can leave you, they were never with you to begin with. And so 23,000 people left Gideon. It makes me think of the story with Jesus. The Bible says he had like 5,000 people with him. Everybody was hanging on every word he said, and they were following him. And then he said something hard, and the Bible says that they all left him. So much so they looked at his 12 disciples and said, do you want to leave too? Can you imagine how that made Jesus feel when 5,000 people walked away from him? So 23,000 people leave Gideon, and he's, he's left with, what is that, 10,000 left? And, and Jesus is, or Jesus, God is like, um, you know, that's still too many. And I'm sure Gideon is like, oh my goodness, what did I sign up for here? And, and God says, I want you to take them down by the brook. And the ones that scoop up the water with their hand and get down on one knee, separate them from the ones that lap the water like a dog. And it's a picture of the ones that scoop the water with their hand. They have their eyes open and they're down on one knee because they understand they can be ambushed at any point. They're not going to take their, they're not going to close their eyes. Where the ones that lap like a dog, their head's in the water and they're not aware of any attack coming. Send those guys home. That was 900, 9,700, I think. So Gideon's left with 300 men. And you know the story. He defeats the Midianites with 300 men and God. And God gets the glory. And it's a fabulous story. So why did I give you this passage tonight and take so much time on it? I wish that I could teach it the way that God was showing it to me this week. I don't feel like I did it justice. There's too much information, and I just plowed through it for you. But here's what I want you to see. God is a jealous God, and he will have another God before him. Do we live in a time of grace and mercy? Absolutely, positively, 100%. 
But I believe that God is looking for undivided hearts. And I believe he's looking for a people who will be set apart for him, consecrated for him, who say yes to the things he says yes to and no to the things he says no to. I believe we're like those Israelites who are covenant followers of God who put him on the back burner in our lives when things are going well and forget about him or just nod at him. I believe that we can bow down to the gods of this world and that we do have other gods before him. And can you die and go to heaven living like that? Saved by grace and not, not by works so that no man can boast. Absolutely. But I'm really getting tired of the enemy plundering. And I really do with all of my heart and soul believe that God's pleasant path leads to pleasant places. And I look back at my life and I think the pain that could have been avoided in my life if I had just listened to God's word. If I had just done what he told me to do, lived the way he told me to live, what a difference it would have made in my life. Would I have been completely without pain? Absolutely not. In this world, you will have trouble. But Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. I, that word is nikeo, it's where we get our word Nike. I have given you the victory. And when we do things his way, we walk in victory and not defeat. We don't give place to the devil to work and our life doesn't get plundered. We stay under the protection of his wing instead of jumping in and out of cover. God's word works. I, I'm just so sorry that I had to get this old before I really started to realize it. Every morning I sit with the Lord and I say, Lord, I, I really do believe that your ways bring life. And I really want to get it. So I, I'm going to ask Lisa to come and close. And I just want you to use this time as she closes out. I, I really believe in fleshing out the sermon and not just preaching a, a, a sermon that really you can't make application to your life. And so the application, the takeaway, the fleshing out would be to look at our lives and say, is there any place that we are bowing down to the gods of this world? Is there any way that we have put more, um, that we are more devoted to a sin than we are to God? That we're more devoted to a pleasure or fulfilling the fleshly desires of our life than we are pleasing God? I want you to see that the Israelites, God let them live a while doing that before he turned them over to the Midianites. It is a kindness of God that leads to repentance. And he's so kind to us. He's so good to us. But I really do believe that it's a time to really evaluate our life and just kind of take a look at it and say, Lord, is there? do I have other gods before you, little G gods? I can make my family a little G god. Do you know that? I know I can make my work a little G god. I can even make ministry a little G-God. Finances. Food. Here's one.
the approval of man, caring so much about what somebody else thinks and so little about what God thinks. I can make my man a little G-God. My friends, I can even make my pain a little G-God. I can be so consumed with what happened in my life, what I had to go through, what, what was happening in the natural and how bad it is that I lose sight of how good God is. And so as Lisa play, plays and sings, I, I just want you to just take a few minutes before you leave and just ask God to put his finger on anything in your life that you've placed more value on.